Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing very well. It is the Sunday show, December the 11th, 2011. Ho, 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 ho. Bald, relatively clean-shaven Santa brings you Christmas thought goodies in his sleigh bells. So, um, again, I like to pass along the, the good news, good stuff that uh, this show garners uh, with your help and support and participation. So this is something that a fine lady wrote to me, uh, or posted on, on, uh, on the internet. It said, many, many thanks go to Stefan for helping me to convey the importance of nonviolent parenting to my husband. While I could talk all day about the benefits and um, implement them while I deal, dealt with our seven-year-old son, he still had the, well, sometimes they just need to be spanked, etc. mentality. He never understood why our son would listen and respond well to me when I spoke calmly and rationally, but not when my husband tried. Consistency being the key, a child doesn't trust a sometimes rational adult. Since having him watch Stefan's videos, he saw the mirror image of himself in our son's reactions towards his father. And I am so very grateful that we are completely on the same page now, not only for my husband, but also for our son, who is the true beneficiary. And uh, she also posted something just to clarify. She said, our kids are four and two. I stay at home and have been the main disciplinary parent. I have tried to explain to my husband that yelling and threatening don't work. He just gets annoyed with that way of thinking and has said that we will try it your way until it stops working. Then I will have to get the belt. To which my response is to be completely resistant. He uses the, I was raised with the belt and I turned out fine, excuse. I don't point it out to him, but he is a very irritable person by nature with a short fuse. I just say that I wasn't and also turned out fine. It's hard for me as a person who tries to constantly learn and move forward to even begin to accept that hitting your child is ever an answer. It is an easy outlet of frustration and not one of intelligent recognition of psychology and behavior. It is passed down from generation to generation, and hopefully I will be here again telling you he has begun to see that there are other ways. Well, I, you know, I, I, th I think that is unbelievably and powerfully and movingly heroic. You know, heroism is something that is, is so misdiagnosed and so misportrayed in the culture. I mean, the cultural depiction of heroism is like uh, fake boobs. <laughs> you know, they're big, they're tinny, they're gross. Uh, you might be able to rest a coffee cup on them, but you wouldn't want to let them near anyone who needs a drink at a very young age. Uh, and it's, it's all distorted. It's... it's um, it's made ridiculous. Uh, you have to have a cape and superpowers to, to do something heroic, or you have to be in a war to do something heroic. But that is not true. Heroism is available to all of us all the time in standing up for the protection and welfare of children. And I have no doubt that this woman is, um, is testing the limits of marital uh, accord, of marital um, getting along together well, and I hugely admire that. And to the husband, I hope you don't mind me talking, you know, man to man, if you consider someone with an accent like this vaguely manly. But, um, dude, taking a belt to a two-year-old and a four-year-old, that is not good. That is really not good. That is only going to teach them terror and obedience to fear. And they are going to look upon you as a man who can turn into a terrifying monster seemingly at random. And that is not the relationship that you want with your children going forward. And the exercise 
of course, that I think helps people overcome this approach to discipline is, I mean, just imagine, you know, you, you, you get a memo at work, you get a memo at work, and that memo says, uh, from now on, uh, anyone who is found to have made a mistake at work, to have sent a document out with a typo, to have uh, gotten a bad review from any customer or client, or to have not received a very good mark on a performance evaluation, we have found a giant 60-foot robot that is going to come in and pin them down on its shaking knee and hit them hard with a massive piece of leather, thick leather with studs that is about a foot wide, and this will be on their uh, vulnerable buttocks or legs or some other painful area. If you were to get a memo like this, you would think that this would be absolutely outrageous, legally actionable, uh, a complete violation of any reasonable norms of employment. But this is how you will appear to your son and to your daughter when you come at them with a belt. Remember, you are about 10 times their size. You are about 10 times their size. You would never imagine using your physical power to hit a woman who was half your size. You would never imagine using a physical power to hit a man who was half your size uh, with glasses. Um, that would be an admission of failure. When you have great strength, the lightest touch is evidence of the greatest maturity. But I would say particularly with men. Men have greater strength. Men have greater power. But it's the light touch of our great muscles that is the true heroism of a mature and masculine soul. So you need to not think about hitting your children with a belt. You need to not think about hitting your children at all. And I know that you feel that you came out fine. But the fact, just look at this possibility, the fact that you're willing and accept as rational and healthy hitting a defenseless, helpless, dependent child for a mistake, and there is nothing, and I say this as a stay-at-home dad to a three-year-old, highly active three-year-old, there is nothing that a child can do at that or any age that is anything other than a mistake at that time, or if it is a resistance or a problem, the first place to look is the cause within your own parenting. Right? We do not meet children as adults. We shape children. And remember, a, a good carpenter never blames his tools. A good potter does not blame the wheel or the clay, but rather the shaping of his own hands on that which he is attempting to build. And the first place that a parent needs to look when frustrated and angry is into the mirror, because we are the primary drivers of our child's development. And we are the hands that mold the clay. We are the gentle chisel that chips at the statue of adulthood we wish to create. And to use violence in that is simply going to split that which you are trying to grow. And it is going to cause, in my opinion, irreparable harm in your relationship with your children if they feel that if they can make mistakes, you can come roaring down on them with massive whips of punishment against their tender flesh. And then how are they going to return to playing with you? I mean, imagine if some giant... Andre the Giant Stranger decks you on a bus or physically humiliates you even just by pulling down your trousers or your pants and pinching your buttocks on a bus. Would you want to go for drinks with that person the next day? The simple reality, my friends, is that I want 
parents to have great relationships with their children. I really want parents to have great relationships with their children. And the move towards the extension of personhood to children is already underway and is utterly, completely, and totally unstoppable. The extension of full personhood. Personhood with whipped cream and cherries on top. Extra personhood because of their weak and dependent and helpless states. Extra personhood is on its way to enveloping children and it's not going to take long. It is not going to take long for it to be complete. This has already happened with blacks. This has already happened with other minorities. This has already happened with other religions. This has already happened with women. The natural extension of personhood to humanity, to aspects of humanity, to areas within humanity that have formerly been denied. It's already happened to slaves. There's no slavery anymore. Women are considered equal. Minorities are considered equal, and rightly so. This extension is unstoppable. It is irreversible. It is going to happen. And your children are going to grow up, grow up smarter than you. They're going to grow up smarter than me. My daughter is already far smarter than I was at her age, and there is no question that that is going to continue. They're going to grow up smarter with greater abilities for concepts uh, and therefore for memory and therefore for empathy and therefore for morality. And they're going to be aware, given the prevalence of information about spanking and other forms of corporal punishment on the internet, they're going to be aware that this was considered wrong by significant sections of the population. They're going to know from their own mother that she considered it wrong and tried to talk you out of it. So what I'm begging you, my friend, please, please do not roll the dice and hope that this movement is somehow going to reverse itself, that this is some sort of tidal work that is going to draw this truth back into the ocean depths to be lost forever. No, this is going to continue to extend and expand. It is irreversible. Do not take that chance for the immediate satisfaction of inflicting a will-based power on your children out of frustration and anger. Do not give yourself that cheap and base satisfaction at the expense of the long-term relationship that you can have with your children. Don't succumb to that devil. Don't give in to that temptation because your children will grow up wiser and better than you, as my children will grow up wiser and better than me. Don't have them, when they grow up, look upon you as a medieval brute who did not listen to reason. Don't let that happen to your relationship with your children. Sit down with them. Apologize to them. Make the commitment not to raise your voice, not to hit them, not to threaten them, not to punish them but rather to encourage them and to enroll them in the success called cooperation and listening. Nobody can listen to that which is shouted. Nobody can learn from that which is struck. And nobody can grow in the acid rain of overhanging power. Do not teach your children to succumb to power alone, or they will remain effective slaves long after they leave your shadow because there will be lots of people in the world who will want to frighten them and bully them and beat down on them. Do not teach them that language. Do not teach them submission to power, because we need strong souls to fight the encroaching storms of power in the world. Don't break them before sending them out to others who will be happy to keep breaking them. 
but have them grow up strong and whole and proud and in love and worshipping you and adoring you as a shelter from the storm, not as the random lightning that splits them in two. And not only will your children love you for that, but the future and the free people that upstanding, unbroken souls will create will thank you and your children as well. So I hope that you will listen to this and thank you so much for listening to this. And now let's move on to the Sunday show. I will talk to you soon. All right, we got Estelle's Ecola. Go for it, Guy. Hi, Stefan. Hi. Hi, so um, I'm uh, studying UPB right now, and uh, I have a few questions, if that's okay. Please, love to uh, talk about UPB. Okay, so uh, uh, actually, I, I'm, I read it uh, almost to full with notes, and I'm working from notes because I just started yesterday. Uh, but uh, I'm having, I have a lot of problems uh, with uh, universability, universalizability. Uh, I don't think you argued it, and also with the foundations. But let's start with. Uh, I understand you're claiming that a moral a norm, which if applied, uh, means someone has to resist it, then that is a contradiction. Am I uh, correct? I'm not sure. Uh, if, maybe if you if someone says itself, you uh, ought to do that and that and uh, say rape or say uh, murder, and because and such an action requires the victim to resist, then uh, he needs to resist something that is uh, that is uh, true, that is uh, virtuous. And right. So, so if uh, sorry, this is the argument for for two men in a room. And if you say murder is universally preferable behavior, then it cannot be universally preferable for both men at the same time. And therefore, you have a contradiction. It's like saying it's universally true that everything you let go of falls to the ground. But then you let go of a helium balloon and it falls upwards. Then your theory is is not correct. So yeah, if if uh, contradictions are required for a statement of universality, uh, yeah, it cannot be universal. Yeah. That's yeah, okay. that's the way it would go. Okay, so what I think is that there is here a confusion between uh, norms in general. When I say norms, I mean, uh, you know, ought, you ought to, and uh, the term right, which are specific norms. What I mean is that from the fact one should do X and uh, does not follow, uh, he should not prohibit another from doing it. What I mean, when we are talking about uh, normative propositions, uh, you ought to do that and that, um, we, are talk we are judging actions, we are not judging results. You understand Sorry, what I'm yeah, saying? No, I, I, understand, I understand what you're saying, but do, are we at least on the same page that if I claim that something is universally preferable, then it has yeah. to be universally preferable. It can't simultaneously... Yes, yes be universally preferable uni and universally yeah. not preferable, or the opposite mm -hmm. of preferable, i.e. resisted. Okay, um, so morality say, I, I think it's uh, moral for everyone to go to the moon. When people, we are judging actions, what you should do, an act uh, 
Uh, I'm sorry, that, that would not be sorry, that would not be a statement of universally preferable behavior because there would be no reason to be specific to the moon, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just saying that as an example. Let, let's just say we, we adopt that as a morality. As long as everybody acts with the goal of arriving to the moon, they are acting morally. No, no, sorry, but <laughs> but that's not a moral statement. So we can't say that it is. Let's pretend it's a moral statement, yeah. right? So that's like saying, let's pretend mathematically that two and two make five. It's like, well, the two and two make five is, is not mathematically correct. So there's no point even starting with that. So if you say everyone should go to the moon, that's not a moral statement. And and therefore, it's not contained within it's UPB. Norm, and UPB it's, would reject that as a moral statement because it's not universal. I don't understand. It, it, it's not a valid one. It's not one that is binding, but it's a normative proposition. Do you agree? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can say that, okay. but no, you can't say it's moral that everyone should go to the moon because it's no, not. No, no, I'm not thing. claiming. I'm not claiming that it's actually moral. I'm just. Um, I, I want to examine the say say uh, uh, two people adopt the religious uh, religion that going to the moon is uh, what they should do. Okay. Okay. Uh, as long as they act with the intent of getting to the moon, they are, in, they are acting morally. They are in conformity with the moral proposition. No, no because it's not a moral right. proposition. It's, uh, no, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll see that that's a normative proposition. Well, sure, but I can also say that creationism is science, but it's not. Right? Lots of people will make, make claims towards morality. Right? Some people will say that it's, it's moral, to circumcise an infant boy. Other people will say that it's moral to um, to rip off the, the clitoris of uh, a young a female. Uh, but they does, be just because I'm they call it moral. Yeah, they're a binding wrong. normative proposition. I'm just saying that that's a normative proposition. And some actions are in conformity with that and some actions are not. Okay. So, okay, so, so actions that are in conformity with this normative proposition are actions that are goal-oriented, their goal, the goal of the action is to arrive at the moon. That's a, that's a moral action, that's a proper action. I'm but sorry, I not. really feel that we're going in circles here because you keep calling it a moral action and I'm saying, but it's not. Okay, do, do, can you give me an example of a normative proposition, uh, a moral proposition, which you think is wrong? It's, it's not a moral proposition, but let's just say it. Sure. Um, uh, theft is universally preferable behavior. Okay. So um, let, let's just not so not to involve no property rights. So let's uh, say murder is universally preferable. Let's go with rape. It's usually a little easier. Okay, rape great. is universally preferable great. behavior. Great. So when we are talking, you should rape, right? You should uh, force uh, someone to do X. Yeah. Um, when we we are judging actions, an action w whose goal is to force someone to do X is proper. No, 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 no. Sorry, but in UPP, sorry to interrupt, but in UPP, I'm very, very clear that that UPP cannot judge actions. UPP can only judge theories. Okay. We the okay. Let's say we we let's examine someone proposed the normative proposition. Uh, a man. That everyone should, should always rape. rape. Everyone should yeah. always rape. Yeah, okay. Yeah, everyone should always rape. Okay. Um, ra what what he's, he's saying, that the goal of the actions that people act should be raping. 
uh, up to now, I'm okay. Uh-huh. Because an action is the use of means towards an end. So what he's saying, the end should be raping. So mm-hmm. when we are ju- judging act, an act to be moral or not moral, we are asking what's the goal of the action. If the goal of the action is to rape, then it is proper. It is a moral action. Okay? Well, I would, sorry, an an action can't be specifically moral uh, insofar as an experiment is not specifically scientific or not, right? Because you can have some experiments that um, are not scientific, right? I mean, you could experiment. I mean, look at all the alchemy experiments of the Middle Ages or... Let me finish, let me finish, let me finish, let me finish, let me finish. Or you could do a sort of oh, verbal sorry. call of your friends about, about the validity of astrology and so on. So you could do experiments that would not be scientific. And you can have actions that are moral or not moral. But if your action called performing an experiment is in accordance with the scientific method, then it is a scientific experiment. Now, if your action is in accordance with a moral theory, then it is you could call that action in in accordance with a moral theory in the same way you could call an experiment that is scientific in accordance with the scientific method. Uh, but uh, the the actions themselves are neither moral nor immoral, but the actions may be in conformity with a the moral theory, if that makes any sense. Okay, that, that does make sense. The actions are in conformity with the moral theory. Now, when you argue against uh, those theories and say that they are internally contradictory, you do it by examining them and show they come to a contradiction. So that's what I want, I, I want to do with you because I okay. think there's a problem there. So, um, so let's adopt the uh, moral theory, the norm, which you say is internally contradictory. Everybody should murder, Okay. No, sorry, no. everybody should always rape. Okay, everybody rape should is always universe, rape. Uh, more, more technically, rape is universally preferable behavior. Yes, but okay, in the terms of the theory, everybody should, ought to rape. Uh, every, all, the, all the time. Now, uh, if, to pe- if every, every action that is goal-oriented towards raping by that theory is in conformity, is moral mm-hmm. by that theory, is proper sure. by that, yeah. So, and uh, now I come to say that uh, from the fact one should do X, does not follow that he should not prohibit another man from doing X. That's a, that's a conflation of the term right no, with the No, no, it, it really does, it really does. And you just need to think of the two, two men in the room, right? So yeah. if the theory is everyone should always rape, then clearly the two men should rape each other at the same time, right? And clearly, well, right action, after they've raped, no, so let no, me finish, let me finish, yeah. let me finish, because everyone should always rape, yeah. right? So anybody who's not currently raping someone is not performing a moral action. Now, of course, there are times no, when no, people that, can't rape. not true, because, because if, you, if you wish to go to the moon, you have to first build a spaceship. You, your actions need to, to be goal-oriented, towards the moon. It doesn't mean you are actually uh, flying to the moon at every instant. You are talking no, about... No, 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 sorry, but, but the, the proposition is, sorry to interrupt, but the proposition, everybody should always rape. Right, so there's, not, there's no goal-oriented stuff here. I mean, it's universally preferable behavior. So there's not a distinction between preparing to rape and rape. Everybody should must always rape, or everybody should always rape. 
uh, does not allow for preparation but of planning. A baby, when it is born, it is not raped. It, it's, it, um, I think it's an absurd way to look at it. When we are looking at a norm, we are saying you ought to do X. That means the goal of your action is X. I'm not saying something that is not uh, everyone in philosophy will, will say. When you say, uh, yeah, but you, but see, but what you then what they're then doing is you're saying that something is universally preferred, but at the same time, not doing it is valid if you're preparing to do it. Is that correct? Every action you should take should do it in order to rape. It right, doesn't but, mean you're at any moment raping because maybe you should take previous steps. You you can derive norms from norms. If right, I want, so, so then, rape, but then, then, I then what's happened is you've broken universality because then you're saying there are two steps. There's the action and then the preparation, but that's no longer universal. Why? Every norm. Because the action is not the same because the planning is not the same as the execution. That's not raping. I'm sorry? If you want to rape someone, you need to uh, first grab him. That's not raping. No, I understand. So that means that there's there's two sections now, right? So then there's planning and execution and those two things are not the same. And therefore, since there's a, a category called planning and a category called execution, then it's no longer universal because you've broken into it that it's it's okay or moral to not rape if you're planning to rape, and then it's moral to rape. But that's broken the universality into that's planning part and execution. Of the rape. Uh, an action is, when, when we're judging an action, we are judging it by the goal. It's the use of means towards an end. And if... And and the, while the end is raping, the action is rape. If if I uh, um, now take a sword and I pull it out and then I kill you, that that oh, oh, when I pull the sword, it was to murder you. Also, the the goals of my actions are in conformity with the I should kill you. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, um, uh, the the planning is not identical to the execution because it's necessary but not sufficient right so you might be planning to rape someone and then you just might not be able to get an erection right and then you're not going to rape them it would just be assault or something else so the planning is not is not sufficient for it's not it's not equivalent to the to the execution but let's drop that because i think we're not making much progress there and let's move on to the other way of um uh, of looking at it which is to say that two men in the room let's say one of them has planned and is actually raping the other yes but if rape is universally preferable, then the other yes. man must also want to be raped, right? No. Let's sure. say the norm what, yeah, is because everybody it's universally. should rape. Right. That and therefore rape is a universal mean. value and therefore it should be uh, wanted or encouraged by the other man. No. We're saying that everybody's goals should be to rape. It doesn't mean that if someone else wants to rape you, you need to allow him. That's the, that's the confusion between rights and norms in general. You're assuming a specific kind of norms that are rights, which means you also have uh, the right to prohibit someone else. You have the right to control and to prohibit. That's a right. That's not a norm in general. I'm not sure where rights come in. I'm certainly not a fan of rights myself. The, okay, so if you are saying that... Uh, uh, everybody should rape. It does not follow that uh, I need to help other people rape. It means that I should rape. It doesn't mean I should help someone else rape. 
but it's a universal value. Everyone means, which means the other guy in the room should do it to you. It's everyone should. Yes, everyone should. It does, everyone goal should be to rape. It does not follow I need to help him rape. No, because it's a universal value. Everyone should rape, which means the guy in the room should should rape. And therefore, if it's a value for you that everyone should rape, of course you should help the other guy rape because everyone, including the guy you're in the room with, should rape. I mean, that's just, I can't, I can't make it any clearer than that. If everybody needs to play tacky, it means I should help other people play tacky? I'm sorry, you or play what? I need to play tacky. Well, everybody. Let's imagine someone who is an egoist. The, the, let's examine an egoist normative proposition. Someone says everybody should only take care of themselves, regardless of other people. Okay, so that by definition, I don't need to care about other people once. If I want to murder him and he wants to murder me because that's our desire, there's no contradiction implied. Because our norm says no, 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 no. But that see, but that, that that's a statement of personal preference. That is not uh, the egoistic statement you made. It does not conform to UPB. Okay, where is the contradiction? Well, the contradiction is to say that everyone should act in a way that pleases them. So if I want to go kill someone, clearly they don't want to be killed, and therefore it can't be sustained because I want to kill them. They don't want to be killed, and therefore if I impose my will, I'm saying that only I should act on that which is preferable. In other words, I've taken out the universality of it and denied the other person the right, for want of a better word, to that which I claim is universal. And so it's broken the universality of it. Then it's become a I like ice cream rather than ice cream is made of dairy products. It's gone when from an, a, a, a universal objective truth or, or statement to a subjective uh, personal preference, which means it's no longer in the category of morality, but rather in aesthetics or something like that. Well, that's the the fact your norm by definition. You, I think what what the problem is, is that we are not uh, clearly defining uh, the meaning of uh, the norms. So, an action is the use of means towards an end. And your body is also a mean, and a gun can also be a mean, etc. When you are specifying a norm, everybody should take, uh, should do whatever they want, should eat as much ice cream they want, or should rape. You are specifying the goal of the action. Every action that conforms, that is the goal of the action, the use of means is towards the goal specified, is ethical, is in conformity with this norm. When you say everybody should take care of themselves, as long as their actions conform to that norm, even if that means that someone else is hurt or someone else, uh, uh, it, 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 there's a conflict involved and everybody acts in, in their own interest, they both act normally by that norm. It's by the definition. That, that's where the confusion comes because you are uh, assuming that if, I, if, if a norm is universally applied to every man, that means that every man must also uh, 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 respect, uh, resolve conflict uh, in, in an equal fashion, if you understand what I mean. 
I'm sorry I don't, and I'm going to have to move on just because I feel like we're kind of going round in circles. Let me mull over what it is that you're saying. I'm, maybe there's something obvious that I'm missing, but uh, I'm going to move on to the next caller or to questions within the chat room just because I feel like we're repeating each other, we're repeating ourselves. This doesn't mean oh, that okay. you're wrong. It certainly I, I, doesn't mean I, that I'm wrong. But I let me excuse to, me, to excuse me, let me just let me finish. Yeah, yeah, let me just uh, let me just uh, finish. So let me mull it over and see if I'll, I'll listen to this again. But. Um, uh, I'm not feeling that we're making much progress, and I'm just looking in the chat room that people would like to uh, to move on to a new topic. So I must listen oh. to the. I am a slave to the to the majority. But thank you so much for calling in. I always really appreciate uh, the the feedback on ethics, and um, you may really have uh, something of value here that I'm just not able to see at the moment. But let me listen to this again when I sort of compile the podcast and see if I can figure out what you're saying. It's not anything to do with you. I mean, I think you're being quite clear, but maybe there's just something I'm not able to put together. Uh, at the moment, but um, uh, it, let, let me just mull it over, and uh, maybe you can call in next week uh, if uh, there's something I haven't understood. Okay, Stefan, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. <laughs> Stop raping the ice cream on the moon. Uh, I think that's 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 really <laughs> that really should be um, the motto of Freedom Aid Radio. That should make everything clear. All right. Do we have a question in the chat room? Sorry if I've missed some, but uh, I'm just scrolling up. Oh, we've actually gotten uh, several people on the call. Um, next all right. up is Stephen. Steve Arino, I am all ears. Like an elephant, but with no trunk. Hello? Hello? I kind of sprung yeah, it on him. There he is. You did. Hey, how are you guys doing? Hi. Hey there. I'm great. Thanks how are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for taking the call. Um, wow. Um, where are we? Yes. Uh, the question I have, Steph, is that I've been trying to do some um, child abuse intervention uh, on the mean streets of New York City. And... <laughs> Uh oh, somebody's ringing here. Um, and all I have uh, is some stuff from preventchildabuse.org. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions as to what I could, what you would like to see, um, or if anybody else has any suggestions, like what, what I could, um, like maybe create some business cards. Um, for parents to hand out to their to them, uh, other than this stuff that's like published from the by the state. <laughs> uh, maybe right. I'm not being clear, but because um, like Prevent Child Abuse New York. dot org, it's like it's like I don't know. Like I hand it out to these people when they're like I'm either going to swing at their kid or they're beating their kid, or if I just see them walking down the street, I'm like. Hey, you know, here's some information. You know, I make up the story that like there's a friend of mine who has kids, and they find that the tools here are really helpful. Um, you know, as a preventative measure, uh, you know, maybe you'll find it helpful too. Generally, the response is positive, um, but I feel like the the um, like I'd like I'd really rather be promoting FDR. Than the well, I mean, I, I don't see the contradiction myself. Like, if you, sorry, if you are, um, I mean, 
if you are helping people to avoid abusing their kids, um, I think that's promoting philosophy. I mean, both in terms of reasoning with the parents and also creating hopefully environments in which the children can reason without fear. So I, I again, I wouldn't sort of think about promoting philosophy rather than FDR, if that makes any sense, because I am the worst marketer in the world. I, I want no brand awareness for myself and I want no brand awareness for free domain radio. I only want a brand awareness for philosophy. So whatever you're doing to help people uh, be rational, particularly when they're in situations of power or positions of power like um, like parents are, uh, I mean, you're helping them be rational, helping the kids grow in, in a, a much less fearful environment, which allows them to be rational. That's promoting, not just philosophy, which we'd like to promote philosophy right now. But the reality is, as human beings are almost very few of, of us are ready for philosophy uh, because uh, most people are too traumatized to be able to think clearly. Uh, again, you know, 90 percent of parents hitting their kids and so on. Uh, terrible public schools, uh, you know, a completely false and sophistical uh, media and you know religiosity still rampant and so on. So yeah. we're 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 creating. You know we're not able to plant the seeds yet. We're not able to harvest. We're not able to cook. We ain't able to eat the tasty, warm, gooey bread called philosophical wisdom. What we're doing right now is we're just trying to hack uh, some of the ice off the earth so that we can think about plowing it in order to plant. Right. So I mean I think that's sort of where we are in in the growth of philosophy. So whatever you can do to create. Uh, you know, fertile ground for the seeds of the ground for the seeds of wisdom to fall on. I think is is magnificent and wonderful. Uh, I don't think that has anything to do with free domain radio. And obviously, I think it's a great resource. I mean, otherwise, I'd go work for some other resource. But uh, I hope that makes sense. That 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 I think is is the goal. And so, look, if there's great information on a government-sponsored website about child abuse, fantastic. I mean, I think that's great. I mean, the 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 technical facts uh, are uh, technical facts regardless of their source, right? I mean, the old argument that when Hitler says two and two makes four, that doesn't invalidate mathematics, right? Uh, and right. so I would um, I would think about that uh, as, as uh, you know, it's the old thing. My, my dentist, I don't know what her politics are, but she, she still cleans my teeth very well. So if that makes any <laughs> right. sense, uh, it, doesn't, it does. doesn't really matter. Right, right. And I'm, one, I'm wondering why I'm getting hung up on that. Um, Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's a moot point. Um, well, no, it does. It matters that you're hung up on it. I mean, that that matters. And and I also it matters that you're using the phrase "hung up," which is a bit derogatory towards yourself. Right, right, right. So, um, is it because? I mean, oh, maybe it's this. Tell me if this uh, if this rings a bell. Uh, are you seduced by the uh, thigh high boots of the one fell swoop philosophical maiden? You know, the one fell swoop, we are going to change the world in one fell swoop. In other words, I can't send someone to compromise material because otherwise I won't be able to change the world as quickly as I want because they may end up more pro-statist even if they're, they stop hitting their kids. I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> that would be a very lukewarm positive. <laughs> Let me check with my pocket lawyer who appears to be having no comment but is leaning towards the acceptance of the possible truth of your unverifiable statement in a way that I can't quite confirm. <laughs> well, I think I, I think I was thrown by the boot metaphor, but um, that's just uh, that might be just something else. But um, no, I, I, being hung up on that idea of um like my like in a perfect world i'd be handing these 
monsters who are beating their kids on the subway or screaming at them or pulling their arm, the kid's arm out of their socket for whatever reason. I'd be handing them some information that's not statist sponsored, that's promoting FDR, uh, and the child um, is saved <laughs> from any further right. abuse. Right. That's the ideal that's in my head. Well, and look, I mean, the, the, the place to test that, and, and look, I appreciate that, and don't get me wrong, I am entirely in the arms of that grim seductress called One Fell Swoop, that bewitching, witchy goddess. Right, um, right. Because, because that's what we want. But, I mean, I'm always about the empirical verification and start local, uh, you know, think globally, act locally. So the place to test out the One Fell Swoop theory is in your closest relationships, right? Because that's where you have the longest history, the most love, the most bonds, uh, the the most uh, um, uh, intimacy, uh, and you should be treated with the most respect. And also in your personal relationships, you have the capacity for the, you know, multiple multifarious conversations that are always part of the one fell swoop. Uh, and like you don't say to someone, taxation is forced, and then they go, oh my goodness, so we save the world by helping children live peaceful lives when they're young? I mean, they're not going to make that. I certainly didn't. I don't think anyone makes that leap right away. Maybe some people do, but they're certainly smarter than I am. But um, in your personal relationships, it should be, it should be, if one fell swoop is possible, it should be in your personal relationships where you're able to affect that most. Now, if you're not able to affect one fell swoop in your personal relationships, having that as a standard, even unconsciously, for people you meet on the street who you are approaching during a time of psychological distress and 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 upset if they're uh, if they're not being nice to their kids uh, clearly if you can't achieve the one fell swoop in your personal relationships then you can't achieve it with strangers i think that would be a fair thing to say and to go one step further uh, if you could not achieve the one fell swoop in your own heart and mind then again expecting it from others and from from strangers would be i think unrealistic and what it would be is is to set you up for frustration remember 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 the great trap that the world sets to those who want to change it is frustration. And the way that the world sets that trap is by luring you into the arena of social change and then inflicting and infecting you with unrealistic expectations. Right. And then you will become frustrated and you will withdraw from the arena and the world will sail on merrily over the cliff, undisturbed in its course. Uh, it is one of the fundamental Right? And it's the way the body works, right? So right. Uh, your viruses get into a fight and exhaust the cold. Uh, sorry, your antibodies get into a fight and uh, exhaust the cold cells and, and munch them up, right? So uh, the, the, the defense of society is uh, to inflict unrealistic expectations on the part of those who want to change society to the point where they get frustrated. And they either then stop trying to change society or they're trying to change society while appearing frustrated, unhappy, irritable, and enraged, which means that people can judge them by their demeanor and reject their arguments out of hand, right? Absolutely. And that speaks... Sorry, I know that was a, that was a big tangent, but I hope it, uh, it makes some sense. No, not at all. No, I, it, was, it was not a tangent at all. It was actually right on the money. Um, it's, that actually speaks to a lot of uh, what I've been feeling since I've um, been taking up, uh, you know... Uh, interventions, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, 
And, it, right. it, I, and it's confused. Sorry. It, sorry. The reason I, I wanted to sort of reinforce your experience, I think, in that it's not accidental that we expect people to listen to reason because everyone says that they listen to reason. Right. Right. Everyone says everyone says that they base their their decisions, particularly their moral decisions on reason and evidence. Right. I mean, people who who yell at their kids uh, believe and, and will make the case uh, or who hit their kids genuinely believe, I, I hope, and I, I, I've heard, I have no reason to disbelieve it, they genuinely believe that it's the best way to do it. People who rely on the state genuinely believe or who support the state that that is the best way to do it. People yeah. who are religious believe that religion is true. They don't say, well, it's just something I was told or it's just something that I believe for no reason. Yeah. Uh, they say that there's all of these reasons. So people constantly use the ex post facto reason and evidence argument as to why they believe what they believe. And then what happens is you give them better reason and evidence and you disprove their existing reason and evidence and it doesn't change. Right. If if a, if a uh, if an icicle is dripping away from a bucket, right, and then you sort of move that icicle over to the bucket, then the water should drip into the bucket, right? Sure. And everyone says, well, the but the the water pool of my beliefs is just the drip 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 of reason and evidence. But when you move that, it should change, but it doesn't, right? And that's something to to accept and to understand about the world. Right. People don't use reason and evidence. People do not derive their beliefs from reason and evidence. They have their beliefs, which are inflicted upon them without reason and evidence, but rather through aggression. And then in order to overcome the humiliation of having been pounded into ridiculous positions like religiosity and culture and nationalism and statism uh, and, and all of that, in order to avoid the humiliation of having had irrational beliefs aggressively pounded into them under threat, people say okay, there's reason and evidence, and therefore it wasn't humiliating, uh, it was just an acceptance of the truth. And then when you bring reason and evidence, you expose that earlier wound, which is why people shy away and avoid. I don't know if this makes any sense, but I hope that helps a bit. No, I'm following. It's clear. I appreciate it. Um, I think part of what might be... Um, I, th I think there's an aspect of guilt uh, for me, a feeling of guilt that... Um, like when I'm watching this stuff going down, you know, these kids getting beaten, um, you know, there's guilt. Uh, there's, uh, I just got an echo here. Sorry. Um, it's guilt, but guilt about what? Like that, that you can't do more guilt that I can't do more. Yes, definitely. Um, guilt that, uh, guilt about, having um, participated in um, beating up my little brother when I was a kid. Um, guilt about, um, you know, mistakes in the past that I've made. And like this, and I think it's kind of morphed into some kind of unrealistic, um, try, like trying to absolve myself of, of you know, things I've done in the past, like things that were not great, you know, but given the, the circumstances I was in at, at the time, I really had no choice, you know, and I was a minor. Um, Sorry, you mean to, uh, to hit your brother? Yeah. Beating up my brother and stuff. You know, I feel really, And really... why did you beat up your brother? Uh, I was, 
it seemed to be it was what was being done to me so i did it to him why is that an inevitable i'm not trying to criticize you i'm just trying to understand your reasoning as a kid right i didn't do it all the time i don't think that's the case no I, but i don't think that's the case for for all children right 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 no, i mean i, I was right. uh, again not to sort of i mean but i was not uh, uh, yeah i didn't uh, end up hitting other kids and i was sort of beaten down although i didn't have a younger brother uh, so that may have been one of the causal factors. But, I mean, there were other smaller kids on the playground and stuff like that. So, uh, again, I don't claim any moral superiority because I was just a kid. But that didn't that didn't occur for me. And I'm just wondering uh, if you feel that it was an absolute that it occurs for you. In other words, all children who are aggressed against will in turn aggress younger children? Um, the conditions at home... Uh, my my father was a, a medal-winning boxer in Ireland as a young man, and that's how all uh, conflicts were resolved uh, with regard to me. You mean he would hit you? Yeah. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm thanks. So sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he's he's still alive. Um, it's amazing about boxes, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, the thought that just popped into my mind, uh, I'm sure you know more about boxing than I do, but what I do know about boxing is that there are, you know, featherweights and welterweights and bantamweights and all that, right? So there are people who are very strictly categorized by size, right? Yeah. And, and you are absolutely not allowed to have a fight with someone that you are larger than by even 10 or 15%, right? Right. Even, even in boxing, there are rules against that. <laughs> isn't that sad it's really sad it's pathetic but of course if you're 10 times the size and the the other quote boxer can't leave and is dependent upon you and is a child then go to town right definitely i mean that's the strange thing about boxing is you're very much told to never hit smaller people but that doesn't seem to translate to the home life and i'm so sorry about that i appreciate that but it's um you know it was uh it was a strange setup. Um, I was, as the older of two boys, I was expected to watch my younger brother. I was given these, you know, uh, responsibilities that were not mine. Um, they shouldn't have been mine. Uh, at least I, I don't feel they should have been. Um, sure. you know, but I mean, but I mean, obviously that wasn't your brother's fault, right? Definitely not. Definitely not. Right. Um, but the reasoning and the logic was if something were to go wrong, if he was doing something that um, would have gotten him hurt, or um, you know, if he or if he'd broken something, it would be you, right? It would be on me, right? It would be on me, and it would, it, and it would, it would fall on me. So I'm like, well, I'm not getting my ass kicked, you know, because he wasn't getting his ass kicked. The abuse was primarily focused on me as far as I know. And how old were you when you were put in charge of your brother? Um, that's a tough question. I can't really specifically say. I think it was just kind of a process, like a slow process. But I, I the earliest recollection would be maybe five, six I remember actually running into the house to tell my mother that my brother was shoving mud into his mouth. I think he was three or four. Right. So, yeah, I was pretty young when I was given um, 
you know, the task of making sure that, uh, I guess he behaves. I mean, how do you, how does a five-year-old make those types of judgments? Um, I don't know, but, right. um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, it was a very unfair situation. Um, and the dynamic, um, in the family, I was, I did a lot of work in therapy, opening up this, um, you know, the birth order and everything. Um, uh, essentially I, I had, uh, my father was the youngest in his family and then there was a, uh, seven years at seven years old, there's another child brought into his family and he was kicked out of the, the, the baby position of the family, uh, of seven. So I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, but I think when my father married my mother and I was, and I showed up when I was born, I think I became his baby brother. So when you were born, your father may have viewed you as his baby brother? In terms of usurping his family position. So like my father married my mother and he was like, well, this, he's, he was probably marrying his mother. Right. But again, sorry, again, this is to say that, that birth order somehow determines how kids are treated. But it doesn't. I mean, I've I've seen siblings. Um, I mean, be incredibly concerned and and tender and caring and helpful towards their younger siblings or their babies. I've seen siblings who don't uh, hit each other. I you know, it's not the birth order is is not uh, it does not trump virtue or choice. It doesn't program us right. In other words, if your father saw you as a younger sibling and he'd been raised in a peaceful, positive, and, and happy environment, then that would have granted him extra tenderness towards you, not extra aggression. Did you see what I mean? Right. Well, he wasn't. He was, he was traumatized. No, I get that he wasn't. Yeah. yeah, he was. But it's not the birth order at all that determines that. Oh, I'm not, I'm not necessarily suggesting that birth order is always going to be a necessary I can, I mean, and sufficient condition. But, but I mean, the way that I would phrase it, and please understand, I, there's, no, there's nothing that I can do to phrase anything in your family that trumps your thoughts and experience, right? But, but this is the way that I would phrase it, uh, is that, uh, yeah, it may have been true that I was a trigger for my father's rage or anger, but uh, this was, as a result of the fact that he did not deal with his own uh, childhood issues, that he did not process uh, that he had been harmed by his parents. And as a result of him not processing that, uh, he ended up acting out against me, which he's fully responsible for. Right. So the birth or the, um, uh, the birth may have been some sort of trigger, it may, but, but the trigger is only there because the person has... has not processed what has occurred. Now, uh, right. not processed is a pretty neutral phrase, right? right. But um, uh, would, did you ever get in trouble for hitting your uh, brother? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Right, so hitting children was wrong. And this is the part that is so hard for people to grasp. And I'm not saying it's hard for you. I'm just, you know, I'm just getting this back from, uh, you know, some, put out a couple of videos recently that people took some quite umbrage at. And I, uh, I'm sort of trying to sort of process why. And I, I think it's because it's, if somebody is consistent but wrong, and even morally wrong but consistent, then I think that forgiveness is, in time, at least a reasonable response. But if someone is not consistent, but is rather hypocritical, then I think that forgiveness becomes much harder. Right? So if, if your dad was like, well, I use violence to solve problems. And so if I get pulled over by a cop, I'm going to deck the cop. And if my boss bugs me at work, I'm going to clock him one. And if the priest says something I don't like, I'm going to march right up there and deck him on the altar. Because violence is a great way to solve problems, right? Right. But, I mean, how often is that really the case? Aren't the people who bully children usually the most obsequious and deferential when it comes to authority? Right. And so you say, well, violence was how my father dealt with stuff. Now, you did say within the family, but that's important. That means it wasn't a universal premise. It wasn't a universal moral rule. And what that means is that your father knew very well that violence was a really bad way to solve problems because when he got pulled over in a car by a policeman, he didn't punch the cop, right? Right. And so he was perfectly capable of restraining his temper. And he was perfectly aware that violence is a really terrible way to solve problems in almost every area of life except parenting. But why would that be the exception? Are you putting a question to me? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's a pretty obvious I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, question and an obvious answer. Yeah, but it's rhetorical. It is rhetorical, but I, I think that's important. And... Um, you know, because I was talking about, you know, people sort of say, like I did this video on the boomers, and people were saying, but the boomers were propagandized, and the boomers were taught by, you know, government schools, and blah, 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 and the Federal Reserve, and this and that. It's like, yeah, that's all true. That's all true. But the boomers constantly lectured me about personal responsibility. I mean, that was universal. Every boomer in authority that I ever met lectured me or someone in the same room about personal responsibility. Paying your debts. Right. And and a million other things. Don't join a gang. Hey, let's vote for the guys who'll give us stuff. Right? There's no <laughs> such thing as a free lunch. Right. If you spend your allowance, you spend your allowance. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be a little bit pregnant. Use your words, not your fists. Right. That was a great video. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. And so my issue with the boomers, yeah, I get that they were propagandized. I have great sympathy for that. I really do. But until humanity notices, as a species, that we know everything that there is to know about being moral already, we can't progress. It's the hypocrisy, not the I get the indoctrination. I really get the indoctrination. But the hypocrisy is still very clear. 
And that's the issue that needs to be dealt with. You know, there are very few people in the world that I have so little respect for that I will withdraw any moral responsibility from. Right? I mean, a man-eating shark has no moral responsibility. Right. But there are very few people I will put in the same category as a man-eating shark because that is to say that I, they have no humanity. They have no capacity. And obviously certain people who are mentally handicapped and so on would fall into a diminished moral capacity and so on. Mm -hmm. But it takes an enormous amount of eroded or, or impossible respect in order to take away somebody's moral capacity. And people could say, okay, well, uh, you know, boomers or whoever, they're not responsible. They, they have no moral responsibility because of the Federal Reserve. Well, that's really tough to argue because it's really tough to argue that people are not morally responsible when they used morality all the time when they had power. Right. It's like, you know, it's like saying somebody is not able to fold paper when they're standing behind a table full of the most complicated origami you can imagine. If the origami is there, they know how to fold the friggin' paper. And if the moral rules are created and inflicted, and if you think back on how you were parented, I'm sure you'll be able to find one or two moral rules in there. You should take care of your brother. Well, I think that's more the parent's job than the sibling, <laughs> considerably. But if you look at the moral rules, wherever you see the moral rule, you will see almost invariably a hypocritical exemption for power. You know, as, I, as I've argued before, that's why moral rules are implemented. Right. But, and I'm sorry to give you a big, long lecture. <laughs> I hope it's of some utility for you, but... Um, no, I'm not, I'm not feeling lectured. I'm not. Oh, good. <laughs> well, it's the first time for everything. <laughs> good. <laughs> good. Uh, but, but that's, you know, that's the key. You know, we can say that there's an entire generation of, of, of parents, of priests, of boomers, of, of, of Gen Xers, of Gen Yers, whoever, entire generation. They have no moral responsibility. But if they have no moral responsibility, then we're not bound by any of the things that they said morally because they were speaking in a language that they did not understand, right? And that's testable, right? So if people are speaking, if I, if I pretend to speak Mandarin, I don't come out with really great sentences in Mandarin, right? I may occasionally have, you know, a recognizable phrase or maybe even in a word, but if I'm pretending to speak Mandarin without comprehension, I will not say anything comprehensible. Or if I do, it's entirely accidental, right? <laughs> hey. Oh, sorry. I thought you were saying something about my mama. But, and so, so the, 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 if the boomers or whoever are not morally responsible, then that, that just simply means that they were only pretending to speak Mandarin, which means there should have been no consistency in their moral pronouncements. But the moment that somebody has consistency in their moral pronouncements or who claims a universal and claims reward and punishment based upon that universal, then we cannot say that they're not morally responsible because they, you can't say somebody doesn't speak Mandarin if they're able to make perfectly formed, rational, coherent, responsive sentences in Mandarin. Then they speak Mandarin. No, it was, it was complete insanity. The rules were changing all the time in my family of origin, I mean, one minute everything would be fine and like, this is how things get done and whatever. And then, you know, uh, and a couple of hours later, everything's completely different. It sure. was so confusing.
so confusing. And, right. and I was just trying, you know, I, I realized things were really fucked up when I think I was, I must've been six or seven. And my brother must've been, he's only a year, a year and a half younger than I am. And we received boxing gloves as a Christmas present. And I'm like, why? I said to my father, why did you give us boxing gloves? And he said, oh, well, and, you know, in his best Irish brogue, uh, uh, sure, well, you know, you're going to beat the shit out of each other anyway. You might as well do it with boxing gloves on. Hmm. And at that moment, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That was confusing, um, but it was also revealing, um, and it helped me to, I don't know. Well, he was, but he was, of course, in a position to make that prediction because he was the central reason why that prediction was going to come true, right? He was almost ensuring it. Yeah, yeah. He was in, yeah. encouraging it because now he's, he doesn't have to be held responsible for anything that happened, and neither does my mother as she sat by and watched and also participated in, 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 in it, um, either directly or indirectly. So now, you know, my relationship with my brother, he's, he sees me as the aggressor. Um, you know, he'll text me death threats on occasion. Um, oh boy. and it's really, it's, it's tearing me apart. And I'm like, I haven't seen this guy. I can't go near him. You know, he, he lives in another state. Um, but I can't go near him because he's just like, as soon as we're in proximity, he just gets violent and angry around me, which is completely understandable. But, um, well, no, no. See, again, you say completely understandable. I'm not sure that it is. Your brother's an adult now, right? Yeah. Well, oh, oh, look, where at least the at mantle least... of moral responsibility <laughs> falls upon him. Right. Like it or not. Right. Like it or not. Look, I mean, I, I can't tell you how much my heart it's just torn in two listening to your experiences as a kid. I mean, oh my God, I'm so, so sorry. What a terrible experience. And to be enrolled and enlisted in this hierarchy of aggression and violence is brutal and heartbreaking. And I really, really, I mean, I hugely sympathize. I mean, you're only a year older than your brother. And children get a lot of um, slack in my book. Uh, when it comes to moral situations, particularly when they're in situations of violence. So my question is, if your brother is so angry at you because of violence, uh, how does he feel about your parents? Well, they're buying them off. He's been living off of them for 30 years. He's been, they've been bailing him out of jail. They've been, um, you know, getting him in and out of uh, training programs to try to, so he can hold down a job. Uh, he's just, you know. And I, that's, I mean, that's so gruesomely predictable. I mean, I was going to say it, but I didn't want to interrupt you with that. Yeah. Of course, he's not negative towards them. Right. 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 So, so then you have a principle where you see violence within the family was really bad. But my brother at the age of five, uh, you know, was really terrible. But my father at 30 or 40 or however old he was at this time, uh, he's great. I mean, to see, that's a complete distortion of values. Complete. I mean, it's complete inversal of values, really. Right. Now, I want to be perfectly clear that I was no angel. I mean, even as a teenager, 
you know, I was really hard on my brother. Um, but it was, you know, uh, there was a divorce, um, and, uh, the father wasn't around. So it was just, the mother had won uh, custody and it was just the three of us in a house in another part of the state. And all the same, you know, codes of behavior had been, you know, I guess more or less beaten into me. So I, I kept on beating on my brother. Um, it, but it wasn't. But you must at some point. Sorry, but at some point you must have not wanted to do that, right? Oh yeah, no, and, and you definitely. certainly kind of felt good doing it, right? There were times it, when it was. It felt. The only aspect of it that felt good, if for lack of a better word, um, would be that. It was kind of like, it was kind of like, hey, you know, how does it feel? How does it feel? What do you mean? He was exempt for the most part, as far as I know, from anything that I had received physically. Well, except through you, right? Except through me. Right. So, I mean, but what was it like? Um when you were a, a teenager and uh, what, when did you guys, um, uh, when did you, um, when did you stop, uh, uh, hitting him? Um, probably 15, 16. And why? Um, I knew it was wrong and I knew that I was, I had anger that was so, um, explosive that I, that I, oh, now I was getting bigger. I had like gone through this huge growth spurt and I was a lot bigger than he was all of a sudden. And I realized uh -huh. that my blows were actually like really starting to take, have a, a far worse effect. And I'm like, this, this is not like, this is not right. I can't be doing this anymore. And then in addition to that, uh, I was thrown out of the house, out of my mother's house. So I had to live. I had nowhere else to go. Um, it was either a, a foster home or go back and move in with my father. So it was partly, it was partly that, like, I started to realize that all this stuff was coming back to haunt me. You know, my brother was like, yeah, you know, he was telling everybody, all of his friends, that his brother beats the shit out of him all the time. And I'm like, wow, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I did. Right. And it was coming out in the wash. And I was like, holy shit. I didn't, I wasn't expecting to be holding the bag on this. But, it, you know, empirically it was true. I was beating the shit out of him. And, and what I do you feel, mean by that? I mean, what, um, what would that, what would that mean? What would what mean? I'm sorry. I mean, what does that look like? I mean, people use these phrases, you know, like beating the shit out, but that's, that's pretty colloquial. I mean, would you like oh, uh, punch it, him closed fist in the face? I mean, did he get no, bloody noses, no, black no, eyes? I, I mean, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It was mostly just, um, I'd hit him in the back. I'd punch him in the back. I'd punch him in the shoulder. Um, it wasn't like brutal. Uh, right, right. Blood. Right. There was no blood. It wasn't like Fight Club, right? Yeah. No, it's not, definitely not Fight Club. Definitely not Fight Club. Although there was one drunken instance um, where I did hit him in the face, and uh, and he had some bruises on his face. Um, and it's that 
and the guilt is just it's on I can't even it's horrendous guilt it's horrendous guilt right right I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry. I mean, I'm so sorry about the circumstances. I mean, it's, it's hard because, you know, you know, at least I hope you know for a fact that if you had not been taught that language, you wouldn't have inflicted it on your brother. I guarantee you. I guarantee you that if you had not experienced violence, you would not have become violent. It was the only way for... It was, it was just the way that every single aspect of my development was handled in that manner. Right. And I was like... I, I, right, but, sorry, but, but I think if that was, in fact, the only way, you wouldn't feel guilt. Because the, the, there's two things that I'm hearing from you as a whole. One is that I was like a rock rolling down a hill. I had no choice. It was predetermined. This was the environment. This is what I reproduced. And you extended that upwards into the generation, at least that came before, to some degree. You know, there was this birth order. You know, they, you know his, his parents were aggressive and so on, my dad's. Right. But if that were true, if that were entirely true, then I'm not sure where the guilt would come from. And maybe it is true. I mean, what do I know? I'm just some, <laughs> some guy in a red room. But if it were true, then I'm not sure that you would feel guilt right so what does the guilt tell you or why is there guilt I, I don't know if the guilt's right or wrong what do I know I'm just I'm just curious genuinely and curious and I really appreciate your honesty in this it's very helpful to me um, what does your guilt tell you about your responsibility I think it's telling me that there was a point when I knew and I chose to ignore the truth. And when was that point? What's the case against you? And we, all, we always got to know the case against us. Whether we agree with it or not, we've got to know the case against us, right? Right. So what's the case against you? The case against me is that there was a point when I knew what was being done to me was wrong. By what was being done to me by my parents was wrong. And that was it was a very early experience. Uh, I think it was about four. Um, but it's just... Um, I think I started to realize that it was what I was doing was wrong was probably like as early as seven. So what your parents was wrong was around four and what you were doing to your brother was around seven? When I realized the case against me is that when I was seven, I knew that what I what was going on and what I was doing was wrong. Around seven. Okay, but it went on for almost another ten years, right? Right. And um, so, what's what's the the case against you? The 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 prosecutory case against you would be would be what about that ten years? That I was cognizant of my actions. 
and that I was, and that I was using my brother as a punching bag as I was also being used as a punching bag. No, that's not the prosecutorial, the prosecutorial case, because again, you've gone back to causality, right? Uh, yes, that's an excuse correct. in there, right? That's, that's, again, that's again. Please understand, I'm not agreeing with the prosecutor here, but I think it's always important for us to know what the case against us is, right? Right. Uh, so, what is the no excuse? Because the prosecutor doesn't give you excuses, right? Right. So, ten years after you knew it was wrong, I continued. Right. So why? I must have, well, I, 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 was, I was given permission to do so. That's an excuse. That's not what the prosecutor would say. Because you feel guilt, right? But the guilt's got to be because there's a case against you that, that you accept. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, right? That um, there, that I was either was or am a sadist. Go on. And those aspects, um, the, the truth of that po as being a possibility is a truth that I can I can hardly bear. Did you uh, did you hit other children? Uh, there was one one instance. Uh, yeah, there was one instance. And but there, obviously, not nearly as often as you hit your brother. No. Did you tease your brother? Did you verbally abuse him? Um. Not that much. Not that I recall. Actually, I, I remember it actually turning around on me. I'd gained a lot of weight at one point after. Um, I had gained some weight and he, I, he would just call me names, you know, about my weight. Sure. Fat shit. And then he'd, he'd be able to outrun me because I couldn't catch him. Uh, you know, a lot of humiliation and stuff. And did he ever hit you back when he, I guess he must have at some point gone through he his had, birth, right? Yeah, yeah, he had, you know, he'd given me a bloody lip, you know, in the presence of my parents. You know, they, you know, they were watching me beating on his back and they'd be like, don't hit him so hard. And I'm hmm. like, yeah. don't hit him so hard. I'm like, well, how hard should I hit him? <laughs> and they were watching this going on and then he turned around and hit me in the face. Remember, I gave you the gloves, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So he turned around and hit me and gave me a bloody lip. And I was like, look, he drew blood. And they're like, well, that's what you get. Hmm. I'm going, right. But I knew, I'm like, but I never drew blood. You know, I never hit him so hard that he, you know, that I drew blood. And they'd be like, well, tough shit. Do you remember what his face looked like as a kid when you would hit him? Like as a little kid? Um, well, I wouldn't, wouldn't hit him in the face. I it was usually like, I just throw him on the ground and just punch him in the back. Like on the well, but when you would be, yeah, but at some point you would see his face. I mean, when you were rushing at him or. Oh, with sure. That yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. He'd be scared. And what did his, he'd be scared. And what did that look like? It was just fear. It was just anxiety and just, 
holy shit, here we go again. And helplessness, I would assume, because, I mean, even at a year, you've got significant size and strength, right? Well, yeah, year after year. I mean, he, you know, some years we'd be closer in size, some years we wouldn't be. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, getting... I was taught really well, you know, how to throw a beating. Um, right. So. And what do you think your motive was for it? I mean, you may have been taught that, but I mean, uh, I'm trying to eat. I'm trying to get my daughter to eat her vegetables. Right. So. So just being taught something doesn't mean that you want to do it. Right. So what was your motive? in doing it. And it's not just because you were taught. I'm sure your parents taught you lots of stuff that you didn't want to learn or didn't like or whatever, right? Right. Um, what was the attraction? What was the benefit? What was the payoff? After you hit him, you felt rel when you were going to attack him, you felt what? Sorry? I felt relief. I felt power. I felt the power to do what? What was I felt the power control? Of I do? felt control over over a situation where that where otherwise I just didn't feel like I had any control. And the control of what was the control over? Like because you you obviously felt powerless or helpless, and then you exercised control. But what what was the control over that you were exercising? I think it was trying, I was just trying to control the, 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 what was, what had, what I was experiencing at the hands of my, my father and my, my mother. Right. And how did uh, attacking your brother give you that experience? In, in retrospect, I don't, it didn't. It didn't. It couldn't have. Because, and, and I'm just trying to be clear, and again, I don't have any hidden answers here, um, I'm, and I really appreciate you talking about this, but when you saw that fear, and you saw that panic, and you saw that helplessness, that had to be your object, right? That had to be what you wanted in the moment. Because that's what you would consistently achieve, right? So how did that fear feed you? What did that fear that you provoked, what did that ameliorate with you? What did that, how did that help you? I, th I think it gave me an out to see what had been, to see what I was becoming. I was becoming a monster. I sort of get the impression that there was a devil called fear that you could drive into your brother and escape yourself. Yeah. It's like a ritual, you know, like cast out the demon called fear into your brother to give you some relief from the terror that you were experiencing. Definitely. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I was able, it was just, it was, it's kick the dog. Pass the buck. It's um, 
Yeah, but that doesn't give you any emotional understanding. That's just a phrase, right? right? That doesn't really give you any emotional understanding. No, it doesn't. So let's say that you had summoned from some otherworldly paradise of virtue, you had summoned the ability, the capacity, the willpower to treat your brother with kindness rather than violence. What would that have caused within you? What would that have triggered within you to do that? I mean, if you'd said to your brother uh, during a time of violence within the family, right? If you had said to your brother, listen, um, that was terrifying. For me, I mean, it must be even more terrifying for you because you're younger. Right. Um, let's, go, let's go into the backyard. Let's climb the treehouse. Let's go into the woods. Let's go someplace. And I want to give you a hug to make you feel better. I want to talk to you about what I'm feeling. I want to ask you what you're feeling. I want to tell you that what we're both going through yeah. is horrible. Right. The answer is love. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's yeah. what it, that's what it would have. I would have and could have experienced compassion, uh, understanding, uh, and an ally and an ally, somebody who could share and sympathize with the horror that you were experiencing, somebody who you could have had a secret alliance with, you know, a touching, a holding of the hands under the table right. while the words are flying like daggers. Right. right. You could have been part of a team. You could have been in the woeful club called us, right? Yeah. And drawn strength from that. Right, right. And what was the price of love for you? What made drinking almost like a vampire the fear of your brother? What made that preferable to whatever would have followed from compassion and sympathy and love for him? Which, of course, is nothing more or less than compassion, sympathy and love for yourself. At the time, I, 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 it's so, you know, it was so long ago and I don't want to make, my perception at the time was that it would, it, the, the cost would have been survival, my survival. If you had demonstrated compassion and love at the age of five or six or seven, how would your father have experienced that, do you think? If you had shown him the noble reaction to violence, how would he have experienced that? A threat. Seeing a seven-year-old, yeah. A Damn major, right. major threat. And there may have been... I, I, don't, I don't think... It was, I, I think I may have been able to, to do that under certain circumstances, but apparently not enough where I didn't have 
I don't know, the tools or something that like I didn't, we were being pulled from school to school every year. So I, I didn't have a sense of ally, like the idea of having, like making a friend was really pretty foreign to me. Mm-hmm. I was always the new kid in school. Okay, let's go back. Sorry, let's go. We're just we're going back to yeah, history. Sorry, I want to get sorry. back to, okay. to the immediate moment. Sure, sure. And um, a, a phrase popped into my head, and I, I, you know, I may be entirely unjust in characterizing your father this way, and it may be entirely out of accordance with your experience. But you can tell me if this makes any sense to you. That if your father had seen you treating your brother with love and compassion, kindness, and support. The phrase that popped into my head was, got a couple of fags for sons. Yeah. That makes sense. Couple of sissies. Yeah. Here, here, here's the gloves. Yeah, yeah. Here's the gloves. You're, 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 you're starting to remind me like of two you know, little little princess fairies and here's some gloves and if i can't make a man out of you well then you're gonna make men out of you you're gonna make men out of yourselves or some bullshit yeah it's it's always you know i get these emails you know steph you gotta toughen your the world's full of tough people hard people (laughs) brutal people you gotta toughen your daughter up so she can no i i will never call maturing a child Sorry, let me rephrase that. Let's say I had a son, because we're talking about sons in your case. I will never say that turning my son into a terrified slave is making him tough. Right. It's like saying you strengthen a dog by breaking him in two, by cracking his spine. It doesn't strengthen. All that means is he drags his ass around and dies. And of course, when people, most people are talking about the world, they're just talking about themselves. You must break your child because I broke mine. Right. You must break your child because I was broken and I won't admit it. And so I must make it parenting, virtuous parenting. I must turn the evil that was done unto me into a virtue. Otherwise, I have to recognize the moral truth of my condition. And you get, right, that I mean, obviously, we're talking about your family, but we're also talking about a free society because in this metaphor, in this analogy, the state is your dad and the citizens are the siblings, right? Yeah. We turn on each other. We turn on each other. We turn on each other. And compassion to the broken breeds rage in the abusers because they know that they should be doing that themselves. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I certainly appreciate, I know it was a long call, and I certainly appreciate you uh, talking about this. I certainly sense, I feel that there's uh, an absence of emotional connection for you with this matter, which I completely understand. But I would examine, again, if I were in, in your shoes, you, you can do whatever you want. Um, but if I were in your shoes, I would write down the case against me. Not for for the sake of fanning these flames, but for the sake of making it conscious. Right. Because you can't argue against something that is implicit, right? You know, the unconscious is like, it's always passive aggressive, right? So you've got some art teacher, you give them a picture, and they kind of 
wrinkle their nose and look away and sneer. And they say, and you say, well, well, well you don't like it? And they're like, no, it's, it's, it's good. You, you can't argue against that, right? Because it's, it's sneery, it's implicit, it's unconscious, it's hidden. You can't argue against something that is merely implicit. You can argue against explicit stuff. And so if there is a case against you, if you fear that you may be sadistic, if you, if you, if you are ashamed of, of the, the perception that you may have had more moral responsibility in the past, I don't know. I don't know. But make the case against you explicit so you can have an honest debate with your prosecutor. Make the case against you explicit. Right. And then have an honest debate with the prosecution. Okay. And again, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, this is a, a shitty sandwich to have to chew through, and I wish you'd been served a different meal as a kid. I wish you'd been served the entire opposite meal. But I think you can pull some great knowledge and virtue out of that gruesome history. Does not make the history good. But it's as good as you can get with the history you have. Right. You know, nobody ever wants to have a heart attack, but people who have heart attacks often end up exercising and eating better afterwards. Right. And can actually end up healthier than if they'd never had a heart attack. Right. And that's my uh, my suggestion. And uh, I just, I mean, I, I feel nothing but but sorrow and and sympathy. Thank you for for your history. And I, I really just want to to extend that uh, that to you. I appreciate um, that. And I could be a pretty judgmental bastard, so <laughs> so I, I hope that gives you some context or perspective. No, it, it's, it was difficult to go into this um, part of the um, the content um, I, because I know some of your history includes an older brother. That was that right. Was, I didn't want to color that, and I hope I didn't. But that was certainly part of what I was asking about. I mean, that's partly selfish. I was hoping it was still useful to you. No, and it's 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 really, and I thought it would be good to discuss this with you, mm. as somebody who has been on the receiving end, because I can't do that with. At least I I feel at this point uh, in my life that I I don't know if I'll ever be able to do that with my own younger brother. Mm. Um, whether this is you know. Uh, inappropriate or not i'm not really sure um or convoluting or whatever but to to summarize um to, to go to go back to the original part of the the call is that uh, i guess this kind of explains uh, how, or at least helps me see um why i'm feeling what i'm feeling when i approach a parent that's beating on their kids Yes, yes. I mean, there, there certainly is a child in your universe who needs some saving, but I don't think he's outside your skin. And I know that the inner child stuff is, sounds kind of freaky and, and you, know, you know, gay and all that, but, I, but it is really, I think it is really important. Now, I mean, I, you know, to, to, you know I, I know, I know. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not entirely without a chest hair or two. And uh, I know that it feels kind of like, oh, go cradle your inner child and you get all kinds of Stuart Smalley no, no. Uh, visions going <laughs> off in your head. But, but it is really important that, our, you know, the child is the father of the man. And our early experiences have massive amounts of information that can free us from repetition. And uh, I don't know if you're married or if you have kids, but if you're not and you want those things, I want you to be a great dad. I'm telling you it's possible. I'm telling you it's possible. 
but um, you know, we first save ourselves, right? It's that that old thing, that little inscription on the airplane right in front of you, right? Right. The mask drops. Put it on yourself first, and then help those around you. Right, right, right. Well, thank you very much for for your uh, taking this call and and going, uh, helping me consider things uh, that I hadn't before. I really appreciate it, and uh, really um, thank you for for. Uh, going um, all this time with the call, and uh, I hope uh, I didn't hog up too much of uh, the air. No, no, that's not, uh, that's, that's my, my call, not yours, so right. I appreciate that. And yeah, do drop me a line, let me know how you're doing if, if you get a chance, and I wish you the best of luck with this. Thanks so much. Thanks. Hey, look, we've got the maximum number of people we've ever had at the live chat. It's good to know. Good thing we upgraded that server. Thank you, my donators. All right. Did we have another caller, or have we got some questions from the chat room I've seen? We have several people on the line. Um, all right. So all right. So we may go a little over. Let's book Yeah. Uh, Josefina? Josefina? I apologize. I don't know how to say your name. You're up next. Yeah. Hi. Here's Alec, actually. Hi. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Alec. Well, that's a long way from what he pronounced. So. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Well, Josefina is sitting right next to me. Hello. Hi. Uh, greetings from Bavaria, Germany. Um... Yeah, I have um, talked to you on the show in 1981, and I made um, a criticism on of your environmental stance. Uh, stance. And, yes. Um, and then a couple of, and I, I have been very busy. I wanted to come up and talk to you about this again um, earlier, but I didn't have the time, but now I'm here. Um, I'm all ears. So, and you somewhere in, I, I just saw somewhere in um, RT media, you repeated again the sentence which I argumented against, which was you need wealth in order to protect the environment. And I said, no, wealth is like um, actually creating the damage to the environment. Um, and then in the end of that, of that show, um, we talked um, about the Kindle and how it yes helped. i remember yeah you remember good and oh uh, no have you dug up stuff about how the kindle is environmentally unfriendly and i'm doomed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean all right let's hear it I, of, hey yeah, if like, you have like... i'm all about the evidence so <laughs> if you've got opposing uh, evidence let's hear it well i came I, I just came across a word and it's um and i think it hits it quite well and it's called um economic metabolism um and that is i think hits it quite well because you're right that, of course, the Kindle saves paper if you only look at the Kindle itself, if you take only the, the resources which are required for the Kindle. and then I'm sorry, but just for those who weren't in that conversation, I didn't say that the Kindle saves only paper. It saves all the manufacturing, energy, the oil, the, like to make the books, uh, the, the inks, the prints, the, the uh, energy it takes to drive the books from the manufacturer to the warehouse to the bookstore and also to return the books that aren't sold. So it's not just the paper I wanted to point out. That yeah, there's a exactly. Bunch of other stuff. I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, 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 um, yep. The whole, yep. In order yep. to create them, but actually, actually, I just wanted to hit out that that word and um, and say what did I wanted to say? Well, just I, that I still don't agree, and I I I I, I, I noticed that you have not um, cons like changed your 
or considered that um, that state. Well, let me sort of let me be clear yeah. and just slice and dice the the um, the argument a little bit. Uh, I certainly agree that wealth consumes resources. I certainly agree with that. Yeah. Uh, because because wealth really uh, is is the transformation of natural resources. Usually, it's considered to be you know we don't consider a water running by our house that makes us rich, right? So it's not just the presence of natural resources, but it is the transformation of those natural resources into some finished good. Whether that finished good is a loaf of bread or a plasma TV or a car or something, but it is the transformation of natural resources, and that certainly uses up resources. And that certainly consumes energy and so on. So I, I think that you and I would agree on that. I think the differentiation, if I remember right, yeah. you tell me if, if I'm wrong. What I um, what I argued was that in a free market situation, the company that can figure out how to produce with the fewest resource with the lowest resource consumption is the company that will win out in the marketplace. And so um, the, the price of a resource has something to do with how hard it is to produce and how scarce it is and all that kind of stuff. And so if, um, uh, if, if a company can figure out how to use half the resources in the production of some iPad, not iPad or something, or the production of some good, it, if it can figure out how to use half the resources, then it will win out in the marketplace, all other things being equal, because uh, it is... Um, uh, it is able to sell the product for less because it uses fewer resources. Now, to find ways of lowering resource consumption requires capital investment. It requires research and development, right? And so my argument is that in order to find out how to lower resource consumption, you need an excess of wealth in order to fund the research and development that helps you to end up lowering the resource consumption. I think that was sort of but, my, but, but, my argument. But I certainly agree with you that, that wealth consumes resources. But, but I mean, um, you see that that argument works um, when you may use it in a free market, but we're not living in a free market, so that approach doesn't work. And I just thought, I just thought, I just think that it's like, yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, if people, um, um, yeah, read your work, they will, they will, you know, see what this is all about, what you're talking of. But if I would just switch on, you know, RT Media and see a guy there saying like wealth creates um, and protects the environment, you need wealth to protect the environment, and only take that um, um, that as a, as a basis of. Well, but TV is twenty-second sound bites, right? Yeah. I mean, and and it is. It, I think it is a true and defensible statement that you need wealth to protect the environment. It's just not a complete analysis uh, of the picture. But there's just no way on television that you get those kinds of opportunities to make those kinds of cases unless you have some sort of more formalized debate. But uh, I think I had six minutes on RT, of which half uh, was was um, debating with with the woman, and uh, I, I certainly tried to put. An argument forward, and um, uh, but I agree with you. It certainly is not a complete argument, and uh, you know, hopefully that draws people into researching uh, more about my perspective or, or, or other people's perspectives on environmental protection. But yes, I certainly agree with you, and I also can imagine that it must have been a little bit frustrating <laughs> to hear me say the same thing. It's like, wait a second, we just had a debate about this, and now this guy appears to have hit the reset button. Is just saying the same 
a thing that we just had a debate about, that's not very honest. And I can certainly understand that that perspective. Yeah. Anyways, that wasn't really actually what I wanted to talk. I just wanted to hit that subject a little bit. But um, what was um, bugging me um, since a couple of months where I was thinking of is like I clearly uh, is it's about property rights. And um, I, wait, your your lady friend doesn't have any questions, does she? Uh, do you? No, not for the moment. <laughs> not for the moment. No. Um, do you don't? You, do you, do you have? Do you have maybe a, a conversation you'd like to have about who talks more in your relationship, uh, <laughs> and and whether that's egalitarian or equal? Yeah. I mean, I'm just you know I'm just looking for some alternative topics to property rights, which I'm happy to talk about. I just you know wanted to know if there was anything from your perspective that would be important to talk about. No, I mean, I was. I have to confess that I am not really familiarized with uh, Free Domain Radio. This is the first time I'm actually participating, and um, and I, 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 I mean, I discovered. I kind of like started listening a little bit through Alec, and um, and it just took my attention. Your your term UPB, right? Uh, Alec was telling me there is a universal um, preferable, behavior. preferable behavior. I mean, as I said, I am not that familiarized. And um, I was going to ask you more or less, how would you explain that? Of course, like if it's not like, again, repeating everything. No, I'll, uh, I'll do it. I'll do it for sure. Uh, yeah, uh, I will do it for sure. You, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm half German myself. And um, I just, uh, uh, I, I know something about how talkative German men can be. And so I just wanted to make sure that we gave you the opportunity to to ask or to talk if that was your okay, uh, particular thank you. design. Thank you very much. That is a... Also, uh, this show can sometimes be be called, um, I guess this metaphor would work in Bavaria, a sausage fest, <laughs> which means that, uh, that there are a lot of men <laughs> on the show. And I'm always interested in uh, having, uh, this This makes sense to you, Sausage Fest? Yes. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to make yeah, sense yeah, that, uh, sense. that more, if we get women to talk, I think that's uh, that's nice. Anyway, so uh, we'll do property rights, and then I'll give you a brief thingy on UPB if that happens. Okay, thank you. I mean, I have asked you. And I guess, should we say brand first? I mean, anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, just, I just question myself, how do I come from the property rights from my own body, which I totally agree, like, you know, I'm, my body belongs to me and, um, you know, no one has a right to intervene with my body unless with my um, confirmation. And um, and I just, I mean, I, I do understand the jump of when I produce something um, that that also can, I can claim the property right to, to, to an unclaimed land or to anything what I produce myself by my own energy and transform it into a good. Um, yeah, but you already. I mean, I, you already talked about this. Yeah, I mean, we I, just we just finished talking about this. Now, let me tell you why. Okay. Um, and uh, you just said that that it was my argument on the Russian television show, right? Oh no, that it's it's a, this is a different. No, I, I, this is completely different. This is a different subject. I'm I'm not referring to 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 the to the creating wealth thing. To, no, no, I know, oh. I know, I understand that. But you said it was my argument, right? Uh, what? Well, I, I made an argument on the RT show yeah. about wealth or whatever, right? And you said, Steph, that was your argument on the RT show, right? In other words, you're saying that I own the effects of my actions. Yeah. That it's my argument. Yeah. So, so that's not my body, right? Once it goes onto RT and, and it goes digitized and blah, 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 right? It's not my body anymore, but you're still saying it's my argument because it's something that I produced with my body and you identified it, I think correctly, as my argument. Yeah. So 
just look at the argument as a good, as a thing that was produced, whether it's bits or, or paper or writing or whatever. It's something that I produced, and you, I think, correctly identified it as my argument. In other words, that is a good that I have produced that I am responsible for that wouldn't exist if I had not produced it, and therefore it's my argument. So I think if you look back at calling it my argument, you've got a good basis for property rights. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, I've, I've got a good basis. I've got, a, I've got that. <laughs> I'm just, I've just uh, got this mind game in side of me like questioning of like well i have this uh, perception of property rights because of all the information i have in the environment which i mean like you know um, how i've been brought up the whole um, society civilization you know how it's how the world works but i was just wondering um that that might be false. Like maybe, maybe we are just. Maybe that's not the way how it how it's right. Like maybe those rights are just not right. <laughs> I don't know. Am I expressing? No, I understand. Yeah. Look, I, I first like of all, I, I this No, I appreciate you coming from. Yeah. I think it's very important to come from a blank slate perspective. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Just to say, what if I was a space alien? You know, coming in, perhaps reptilian in nature. There's a nod <laughs> to the chat room. But uh, perhaps, uh, I'm, like, if I were a space alien coming in and I knew nothing about human society, nothing about human morality or religion or history or nationalism, how would I view this strange ant farm called? planet earth right i mean so i think it's really important to to take that perspective that to me is philosophical and and it's also scientific because science tries to look at everything with with fresh eyes you know free of prejudice and history it doesn't always succeed and lord knows i don't either but i think that's a good perspective so i think it's great to question that stuff but uh, certainly if we own our own bodies which nobody can argue against self-ownership without exercising the self-ownership called making an argument so that's that's just that to me is you, you simply have to accept that or, yeah. you know, there's no no reality in, in, in reason or evidence. And so if we own our own bodies, then we must own the effects of our actions. We must. Because our body is just a thing and the stuff we produce is just more things. Now, in, in regards to things like unowned land, I really get this. And I get this question a lot and it's a great question, which is, you know, <laughs> what asshole appointed some guy who fenced in land, the perpetual owner of that land from here to eternity, just because he happened to be there two steps ahead of the next guy. Right? Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that's a great question. Um, the first thing I would recognize is to say that the enclosure of land, like you fenced land, that's all government stuff. That's not how the free market has decided or determined what is valid property. Remember, property and the enforcement of property is all run by the government, right? That's what Proudhon meant when he said property is theft. What he means is that all property rights that are enforced by the government are effectively theft because the government is using violence to enforce them. And the vast majority of what is called wealth in society is uh, at least aided and abetted by state force, right? Think sort of copyright laws and, and uh, patents and all this kind of stuff. Mm. But... Um, or, you know, the entire financial sector, which runs off fiat currency and, you know, <laughs> the regulation which is created in order to be ignored. So uh, I don't know for sure how pr property rights within land would work. I do know from personal experience as a gold prospector in my youth that you would uh, enclose a particular area of land by pounding stakes into sort of four corners and you would get the mineral rights 
for a certain amount of time. But if you did not develop those mineral rights, then it would revert, revert, the land would revert back to a state of nature. That's how it works, at least how it worked 20 years ago here in Canada. Uh, so I, I think a rational system would be, okay, if you go and enclose some piece of land, like you build fences all the way around it, then it's yours. But if you don't develop it within five or six years, then it reverts back to a state of nature and anyone else can claim it and you've got to do something with it. I think that's sort of how it would work rationally. But um, I think what's most fundamental to understand about land ownership is that no one cares about owning land. We only care about the goods that can be produced from that land, right? So if I said to you, hey, listen, my <laughs> Germanic friend, I have a great piece of land uh, in, in Bavaria, but, and, and I want you to give me uh, 500,000 euros for it, but I'm never going to tell you where it is. <laughs> you wouldn't give me any money for it, right? No. <laughs> no, all right, uh, because it would be meaningless to you, because you wouldn't be able to do anything with it. Or if I were to say to you, well, I will tell you where it is, but you can't ever visit it, you can't ever rent it out, you can't ever have it developed, you just have to leave it in a completely pristine state, but you can't even go and look at it, then you would not give me any money for that either, I assume. I assume, no. <laughs> Right, but but if I said, listen, you can plant food, you can uh, you can rent it out, you can let people uh, park their recreational vehicles there, you can uh, you know build hot tubs on it, you can you know whatever, right? Uh, th then you would have something. But what's actually being what, what the property is really what you can do with the land, right? Or if I said, well, you're allowed to plant wheat on it, but you're not allowed to harvest that wheat. You'd say, well, that's sort of pointless. I mean, what's the point of that, right? It's just going to fall over and just rot in the ground. So it's what you can carry off from the land. And whether what you carry off is great memories of a beautiful view or photographs or whatever it is, uh, it, that's, you know, that's, those are material goods as well, in my opinion. Uh, so it's what you can carry off from the land. It's what you can do with the land. It's what you value you can add to the land that matters. The land ownership itself is merely the means to the end for what you can build on that land or take off that land or, or value that can be extracted from that land. Uh, so just looking at the fencing issue, I think, is to miss the point of land ownership, which is what can be produced. And once you're producing something, then you've inv invested your labor in the land and turned it into a capital or goods producing entity. And I think everybody would accept that your ownership is then pretty cemented. But uh, is, isn't that um, a very uh, Western perspective? I mean, like a very... I mean, I think there are still some communities that uh, would appreciate the land for other, because of other characteristics. Um, I explaining myself like um, indigenous people, for example, would uh, understand or would have a relationship to, towards the land. I think from like from a different perspective, a totally different one, right? Not like what is going to be produced with the land or through the land, or what even like if even if it's like a. Um, like material, uh, I don't know, goods that are related with some type of, or attached with some type of community or even like a feeling, you know, like, oh, I was born in that land and I that's why I want that, that land or I want to be there. But I think uh, there are some other perspectives that are more like, that see the land as something, for example, living or something you can relate with. I don't know. Sure. And, and I think, I mean, I think that then, People who want, like, so there's some people who want to, uh, to, to, to plant crops on, on land, and there are other people who want to keep that land in its natural state for, for hiking or, or camping or whatever. Mm -hmm. right? 
I know I know that's not exactly what you're saying, but is that sort of one distinction that you mean? That that one, I mean that yeah. uh, that the, there are different type of uh, functions from the land. You can use the land from for different things. Right, but but I think you're also talking about different conceptions of property rights as a whole, right? So so for instance, um, yeah. uh, Native American Indians yeah. would um, they didn't have at least some of the tribes were hunter gatherers, right? So they didn't have an agricultural based society, they would follow the buffalo herds or the bison herds around and live off the berries and nuts and they would not have the same conception of property as everyone else, right? Yes, yes, totally. Yeah, that's what right, I'm talking right. about, like the different type the different conception of the yeah, rights. Or uh, yeah, just the way I mean I don't I don't really think they even had the same um idea of um of uh, yeah what is uh what what is what is the ownership what do, what do you own right i mean uh well no sorry again i'm no expert on this but my understanding is that uh, there was still ownership and property rights in those cultures um so for instance i mean if you're following around a buffalo herd then you are going to kill some of those buffalo and you're going to eat them and you're going to make clothes that make you look like Rackel Welch a million years ago uh, out of the hide and so on. And that is still the consumption of resources in a really fixed and finite way. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was, there was property rights over the herd, but there was not property rights over the land, if that makes sense. Like they, they exercised property rights over the herd in the same way that a farmer would exercise property rights over his livestock in terms of killing and eating them and making leather chaps or whatever yeah. so there is still the exercise of property rights it's just around a moving resource like fishing rather than farming if that makes any sense okay okay yes i i think i got uh, i understand uh, that point i mean i'm just like, now uh, sorry but but i will say this that that when you get a hunter-gatherer society colliding with a farming society then you have pretty conflicting property right definitions occurring because the hunter-gatherer society, let's say the buffalo following society, mm -hmm. it needs a lot of land and it doesn't care about the land, really. It only cares about the buffalo. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't want to domesticate the buffalo because the buffalo need to roam. Buffalo, they got to roam. I hear that's, that's important for them. They are, um, they are rambling men. And so they need lots of land for the buffalo to roam, whereas the farmers want to enclose the land and not have buffalo stomp all over their crops. Mm -hmm. And so when you get a, um, a hunting society uh, meeting up with, let's say, a, um, a farming society, which is sort of the Native Americans and other cultures meeting up with uh, Western agricultural or manufacturing-based societies, then you have a significant conflict and a significant problem. And uh, I, I obviously don't, there's no magical solutions to all of this. Um, I mean, a, a number of them have been tried. But I'm not sure that it's really clear to argue or obvious to argue which one should win out. And I think that's your point. Like, why is, why is the enclosing the land society's property, conception of property rights or exercise of property rights better than the, you know, the hunter-gatherer uh, conception of, um, uh, of property rights, which is we don't care about the land, we only care about the herd? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, I'd have to think. I don't, I don't have anything intelligent to add other than I can totally see the conflict, and I'm not sure that I can objectively say which one is better or worse. I don't think it's possible. No, I don't. But there definitely is a conflict. Yeah, I mean, I, I just like I was just pointed out that pointing out that uh, there are different uh, perspectives, you know, like to relate uh, with the uh, with land. I mean, I mean, I think, I think, like, just our civilized 
world culture likes to separate between the human being, the natural world, and then it's fire and it's the supernatural. And I mean, yeah, I th and I think these indigenous cultures, they just didn't make this separation. It, in a, in a, I mean, they, it's like, it's also, I mean, how they, uh, where, where am I going to? <laughs> no, look, I, I, I think, I think I understand what you're saying and, and, you know, tell me if, if I'm wrong, uh, that, um, I mean, there is a separation between man and nature that comes out of the Judeo-Christian world, right? Mm -hmm. In that all of nature is created to be subservient to man, just as man is created to be subservient to God, and only man has a soul, and only man is divinely created and implanted with the divine soul, and therefore man is separate from nature, and all of nature is under his dominion, and his relationship is with God and not with nature, and nature's relationship is with each other and not with God and the only relationship nature has with man is to be subjugated and utilized. Uh, it is a terrible and false <laughs> belief, right? I mean, we have no soul. We weren't created by God. We are animals, uh, just like all the other mammals with, you know, a slightly couple of extra folds uh, in the frontal lobes. And so uh, I don't agree. It's a completely false proposition. But, you know, I mean, how many propositions from 2,000 years ago are still valid today? I mean, so um, I agree with you. Now, I don't think... That I mean, this idea that that the Native American Indians lived in complete harmony with nature and peaceful society that that seems to me, at least to the degree that I've read about it, to be pretty much a myth. Uh, they they had wars. Uh, they were brutal towards their women and towards their children, of course, right? Any society which is not evolving is being brutal towards women and brutal towards children um, because they're indoctrinating and and uh, not allowing them to think for themselves or challenge preconceptions. And they were intensely mystical societies. And with mysticism, uh, almost always seems to come uh, internecine violence. And so in terms of how these two societies collide, it seems to me that the pattern is always the same, that the technological advancements that are inherent in an agricultural society will always trump the relative technological primitiveness of a hunter-gatherer society. So in a sense, it doesn't matter what the morality is. It's like trying to figure out the morality of Homo sapiens versus the Neanderthals. Uh, it doesn't really matter because those conflicts are all largely done now, uh, and they were unfortunately decided uh, through brute force. Uh, and the, the agricultural societies, because of superior technology, which really only occurs in an agricultural society for a variety of reasons, will end up just decimating the hunter-gatherer society um, but I think that there is sort of guilt-laced idealization of the hunter-gatherer society, but uh, at least the stuff that I've read, is, uh, is it's, uh, it was pretty brutal too. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think we are also generalizing in many senses. I yeah. mean, we're saying indigenous people, right? And Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to think of a sense in which we're not generalizing. Because <laughs> no, I agree no, with you, we're generalizing completely. Like yeah, yeah. Because you have to generalize, right? It's something necessary sometimes. But I'm just saying, I mean, like, I, I don't know. We, I mean, I think you're talking about uh, Native Americans. And I, I mean, I know there are many, for example, matri matriarchies out there, like still, like, I mean, not many, actually, very few. But uh, that, that would actually put in... Like that would uh, be the opposite of some of the examples that you were giving of how, 
like evolving. You're talking about you're talking about Angela Merkel, right? I mean, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the only matriarchy I know of was England Not in the well, 80s. Or and... that, uh, but maybe they are. I mean, I'm just like I know that there were some uh, matriarchal uh, um, communities. I don't really know that much. That's. I mean, I'm not really the one who raised this topic about nature and human, <laughs> and and the human being is Alec, and I don't. I'm, I don't really. I don't feel um, close to that uh, to that topic, but I'm just trying to right to give my point of right right but uh, and i'm sorry to interrupt but there's somebody who seems to be quite insistent that i mentioned chuck norris in this conversation and i think it is important to mention that the only differentiator between whether the hunter-gatherer society wins or the agricultural society wins is which side chuck norris chooses uh, and i think that's just important to mention <laughs> okay. and then we will continue just because somebody's been pestering me to mention something about chuck norris so there okay. We go. okay okay good wonderful it's a nice <laughs> way to get out of it <laughs> no but uh, <laughs> to get out of this uh, we're getting very uh, i mean i i'm a little bit uh, confused already of what i was trying to express at the beginning yeah. but anyways i mean you want to continue? Yes. Nice. Or maybe you want to explain now the term I was uh, talking about. I mean, I was asking Oh, yeah, you. universally preferable behavior. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> um, well, the way that I generally explain it is, is in a song. <laughs> so let me just get the right pitch. No, I'm kidding. Um, don't be frightened. I can everyone, quick, turn off the speakers. Okay. Um, I have struggled for, for many years to find a way of developing a system of ethics that relies neither on the coercive power of the state nor relies on the irrational mysticism of religion, neither of which I consider to be a satisfactory explanation mm -hmm. for the problem of ethics. And so a couple of years ago, I just basically I sat down at a desk with a big pot of coffee. And that may have helped. It may have hindered me. I don't know. But when I said, I am not going to get up from this desk. I don't care if I have to pee on the floor and crap my pants. I am not getting up from this desk until I have a framework of ethics that can be rationally sustained uh, and, and also uh, support, is supported by the evidence around the world mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that does not rely on the hierarchical power of state uh, coercion uh, or on mystical revelations from imaginary sky buddies. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I did. Uh, I did do my very best to, to come up with that. And I came up with basically a system that is slavishly derived from the sciences. I'm a huge fan of the scientific method, uh, as I'm sure you're, well, I guess you're aware now, I've, I've said it. And the one thing that I've noticed from the scientific method is it relies on two essential aspects or, or categories. And, and the first is that a theory has to be logically consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, this is true in obviously all of the sciences, right? Biology and, and uh, physics and and. Uh, I mean, in the practical sciences like engineering and mathematics and all the disciplines, all the rational disciplines, and this is true, of course, in philosophy, at least, we hope. So a theory has to be internally consistent, uh, consistent with reason. And if it passes that first test, then we get to the point where we can say, okay, let's put it to the test in terms of physical things, or we'll run some sort of experiment. And uh, so I said, okay, well, since science, since the scientific method is by far the most successful mental discipline that human beings have ever come up with, ever come up with, because it is the one thing that has differentiated us from the ancient world, uh, really from the, the Middle Ages uh, and or Renaissance, pre-Renaissance, pre-Enlightenment and onwards. And science has made far more leaps in, in progress of the human condition over the past 200 years than was achieved in the entire multi-billion year history of the planet. And, uh, and I think that we can also make the same case for the free market, but certainly science 
has has uh, is the most successful human system. And so, if morality is going to be at all valid, it can't oppose basic principles of science. So, the first thing that we need to accept or expect or demand, really, from a moral system, any system of what I call universally preferable behavior, is that it has to be logically consistent. It has to be internally consistent with itself. Mm -hmm. And so, I. I use a framework which I call universally preferable behavior, which has these two demands. It's got to be internally consistent, any moral standard that's put forward. And it also has to explain the evidence, right? So if you have a moral system that is internally consistent and predicts that communism will be a great success, then you've got a problem with your moral system. Mm -hmm. uh, because communism was not, as you <laughs> are more aware of, I think, even than I am, having uh, you know, given up a good chunk of your income to the Germans devoured by communism for, you know, 60 or well, I guess 40 odd years. So, uh, so a theory has to be internally consistent. It has to agree with the evidence. Those were the two standards. Now, I threw another standard on top of that, uh, which was to say, and I take this straight from Aristotle. Aristotle said, look, you can come up with a, with a moral system. You can come up with a moral argument. You can come up with a moral framework. But if your moral framework spits out that rape is really really good you've made a mistake i mean i don't care how logical it is i don't like you've made a mistake mm -hmm. and uh in the same way that it, you can have a very logical system of, of physics or, or whatever but if it spits out that a rock should fall upwards when dropped at the equator then you've made a mistake i mean uh, you know we, we don't have to go test every rock we just know it and so there were four categories of morality that i wanted to test using this framework the first was uh, no murder, right, obviously. Mm -hmm. If you have a moral system that says the best thing you can do is to murder everyone, unless you're an Old Testament deity, that's just not good. <laughs> that mm -hmm. just can't be right. Uh, the second one I wanted was uh, no rape, of course, right? And the third I wanted was no assault, no beating people up. And the fourth that I wanted was um, uh, no theft, right, a respect for property rights. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I dutifully came up with the framework and, and uh, uh, ran all of these um, these four major moral uh, axioms, I would say, through this. And yay, lo and behold, they all popped out. Now, it also had to deal with what I call aesthetically preferable actions, right? So if you and I are going to meet for dinner at 7 o'clock and you show up at 8 o'clock uh, and you just didn't feel like coming on time, that's not good. I mean, we can say that that's not a good thing, but it's not something that I can lock you up for, right? It's not, so so it, there had to be things which it would have to recognize a category of stuff that was preferable and even universally preferable, but it did not give right, the people the right to incarcerate someone for being late or for being chewing their gum too loudly or, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? So it, it had to, so I really wanted the, the moral system to, to fit with the commonly accepted human axioms. Because that, you know, that just sort of made sense. And I, I have a good deal of respect for the collective common law wisdom of mankind. So um, so I, I worked through this. And, uh, of course, there's a free book at freedomainradio.com forward slash free called Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. And um, you can look at the examples uh, that I cite. You can look at the framework and you can, you know, if you find flaws in it, of course, please let me know. Uh, I would really love to improve it. There have been some suggestions for clarities, uh, for clarification, which I think would be really helpful on version two. But that's uh, the basic idea uh, behind it. I think it's been uh, a good success uh, so far. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it can still uh, 
uh, be improved upon. But that's basically the uh, the idea behind mm-hmm. it. Does that mm-hmm. does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. I would have to read it though because. Uh... No, no, seems... you can just accept that I'm right without actually having to read. No, okay. I'm kidding. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, because it seems a little bit more complicated than I, ex- than I expected, or at least like that it that, that it needs a little bit more of a study, right, than um, just... Uh, oh, yeah. Put, I'm not going to uh, start like asking you stuff or like trying to criticize it when I don't know it in like deep and analyzing it, you know, a little bit more, I think. Right, <laughs> right, right. But... Yes, no, and, and I agree. Um, and you would, I would hope that... that uh, proof of ethics would be really tough because if it wasn't it would really suck that we didn't have one yet yeah. right i mean uh, so um uh, so uh, i would uh, i would strongly suggest this in an audiobook it's in pdf you can they're all free you have to pay a couple of bucks for the print edition because it's not free to me but um i hope that you will uh, uh, take a shot at it and i mean i think that's the most important thing around uh, you know we need to have a good clarity and rationality in a system of ethics so yeah okay thanks yeah. All right. Thanks. And yes, Chuck Norris is is the uh, person who created the reptilians, who created okay. uh, humans. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> New York City meetup tonight Everything. at Flight 151, 151-8th Avenue, New York, New York. What time? Eight. I don't know. What? <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. I, this is somebody in the chat room. I'm sorry. I've left you people behind. Uh, I'm done with y'all. Random um, Oh, the difference between, somebody's asked the difference between fraud and lying. I have no idea what the legal definition is, but the way that I would define it. Oh, 6.30, 6.30 p.m. The difference between fraud and lying. Uh, <laughs> uh, fraud is knowingly lying uh, in a uh, situation where somebody suffers a significant material disadvantage uh, and, and you know, has lost money. So uh, if I tell you that it's raining when it's not raining, uh, that's lying, uh, but it doesn't cause you any material disadvantage. If I tell you that I'm going to ship you an iPad if you ship me $500 and I'm lying about that, then you've just lost $500. And so that's um, uh, that's the difference, I think. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I uh, got a little... So, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, feel free to call back in uh, if you have, you know, bring that famous Kantian German rigorous logic to bear on, you know, anything that I say. I appreciate you letting me get away with massive generalizations about most of the human race. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate that. I recognize, uh, as I always do, that there are, you know, countless exceptions to all of that. And if you do find an example of a, uh, a matriarchy, um, Nowadays. that would be, yeah, please, please sh- ship me or stuff. Or even if it's not something current, would it be any... Because I'm pretty sure there are, there is. Uh, I, as I said, I'm not really. Uh, I haven't. I haven't really researched, but uh, I'm very sure there there were. Maybe. I mean, I don't know if it's correct. Yes. There, but yeah, I will for sure. It's a great picture. The one in uh, the chat. There is a Johnny Depp. Is there? <laughs> oh, is there a Johnny Depp? What does he say? Yeah, the, I don't say, know. Yeah. The, someone posed. I mean, someone. You know, kind Johnny, of. Like, Z- Johnny Depp says, "If you love two people at the same time." Oops, Netflix up again. It's very difficult. No, it's- oh, if you oh. love two people at the same time, choose the second one. Because if you really love the first one, you wouldn't have fallen for, for the, the second. second. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll call that philosophy. Yeah, it's a good one. Okay, well, thank you very much, Stefan. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. All right. So... Uh, do you have to cause someone lost to be fraud or is attempting it fraud? Well, it would be attempted fraud versus actual fraud in the same way there's attempted theft versus actual theft. 
Do I have any theories on flow or being in the zone, how to achieve it more consistently? First of all, I'm so sorry that you've had to repeat that question so many times. I know you came up with it last week, maybe even the week before. I do apologize that uh, for that. Um, to, to me, uh, flow is uh, has a lot to do with um, don't don't look down. <laughs> I mean, I, I swear that that you know half the time, if not more than half the time, I'm doing a podcasting. Having I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just waiting for the words to come. And particularly when I go into the the sort of the jokey um, uh, metaphors and so on, uh, I'm just hoping that the words come out as my mouth is. <laughs> is working. I hope that these syllables come out of the wet noise hole that is currently flapping. And um, it's really just about, uh, about um, uh, don't, don't look down. Yeah, don't look down unless you're reading. Uh, if you are crossing a chasm uh, on a rope, uh, it's pretty important to not look down uh, because that's going to freak, freak you out. And certainly the scope and, and size and power and majesty of what it is that I'm trying to achieve or what we're trying to achieve here that um, uh, is is so monstrous that I just have to grit my teeth and not look down, <laughs> because if I do, uh, I will uh, uh, falter, and <laughs> I don't want to falter. I you know I want to falter for the right reasons. You know the better reason and evidence comes along. So um, I, I think um, it's something I read many many years ago. Uh, it was from a woman who was a fundraiser and a very popular and powerful one. Now she was also a socialist. It doesn't matter what her name is, but. She's quite a famous Canadian. And she said, you know, if you want to get something done, you just act like it's getting done and it'll happen. Right? So if, if you want to put together a gala and you need a bunch of celebrities to come, you with some gala dinner to raise money for charity, then you call the celebrities and you say, listen, there's this gala coming on. Do you want to come? Not, would you like there to be a gala? But there's this, this gala is happening and, um, you know, I hope that you can make it and here's why you should come and, and here's the, how it will benefit you and here's how, more importantly, it will benefit others and so on. And I remember reading that probably 15, maybe 17 years ago, and I thought it was really great. I mean, if you want to get something done, you just act like it's getting done, and that's how it happens. You just say to people, there's a gala dinner that's happening. I hope you'll come. And that way, you end up with a gala dinner and a bunch of people coming. And so you don't ask. You just tell people stuff's going down. And uh, so, yeah, um, I wanted to have the best and brightest and most enticing, enjoyable, a challenging, alarming <laughs> philosophy show that the world had ever seen. And thanks in large, large, large part to the brilliance of listeners like today and great conversations, the honesty, the openness, the uh, irascibility of the listeners um, we have, I think, achieved that. And that really was the plan. You just, you can't ask for things in this world. You need to just um, go and do them and wait for the world to catch up if it's interested. I would love to come to England to visit, and um, we will work on that. A question for the season. He said, uh, I, got a, I got in a small discussion with someone about it. I'm wondering your opinion on telling children about a magical fat man who lives on one of the most inhospitable places on earth, Guantanamo, whose primary job it is to use slave labor of small stunted beings to create presents for children. When I told this person that I did not plan to lie to my children about the Santa, I was told that I would deprive my children and not let them have fun for the season. I, uh, I get this question a lot, particularly this time of year. Santa be Satan. Look, <clears throat> Santa's a guy in a suit. Santa is a guy in a suit. Um, my daughter, we, we go to the mall, and there's a guy in a suit. And that's fine. And, and she says, there's a guy in a suit. And I say, yeah, 
There's a guy in a suit. He's dressing up like Santa. She understands that, right? She, she understands that there's no man with a yellow hat uh, who has a monkey, right? That it's just a cartoon. She's completely fine. She, she says, you know, if she, she, she was trying to eat something the other day, she shouldn't have eaten. And I said, don't eat it. And she said, Dada, I'm just pretending, right? Or she was telling me to be a grandfather clock because she's currently quite enticed by them. And uh, I said, uh, let's play the clapping game. And she said, no, Dada, grandfather clocks don't have hands. I didn't, of course, explain to her the double meaning of the word hands with clocks, but uh, she's perfectly fine navigating between reality and make-believe. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a story called Santa Claus, and people like to tell this story. And here's a guy who is dressing up like that story. I, you know, I don't think that delusion is, is fantasy, is magical, is fun. And um, particularly, of course, when people use Santa, like, uh, if you don't do what I tell you to do, then you're not going to get presents. Well, of course, that's just, Santa's just democracy, right? I mean, that's, that's preparing children entirely too much to lobby uh, politicians when they get older and to say, well, okay, if I don't, you know, if I do obey the law, then, or if I do, you know, follow the herd, then I will get all these goodies. Uh, and if I don't, then I won't. And so uh, I'm always concerned about magical gift givers in situations of moral authority, whether they're Jesus or the state. Uh, they, they cause me concern because that's quite the opposite of rational understanding in philosophy. And I'm afraid that uh, the lines are clearly drawn and we are sworn enemies to the chubby man who's always housed by, who's always, uh, the chubby suit that's always housing an alcoholic at <laughs> some, of some kind or another. And so, so yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's a fun story. Nothing wrong with, uh, with fun stories. All right. Well, I think well, I mean, we've certainly gone over, and uh, I appreciate that. And thank you. Oh, my God. How can I thank you people enough? How, how, how can I thank you people enough for everything that you do, your participation, your interest, your financial support, your emotional support, your uh, support of the conversation? Um, don't forget, uh, uh, philosophers like to, uh, to buy a goodie or two for Christmas, though I am entirely enslaved in buying fun things for free to made radio. Um, if you would like to send uh, some... Uh, donations to Free Domain Radio. Um, it's, of course, massively appreciated. Um, I never feel, you know, wildly comfortable asking, but it is a necessary part of, um, of what needs to be done. Uh, and so uh, if you'd like to go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donations, uh, I would really uh, appreciate that. And um, uh, you can, uh, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. I mean, if you want to post this on Facebook, uh, you know, anywhere that you, you can, I would really appreciate that. I mean, the, the, you know, the wider we cast the net, the better. And um, I'm still working off and on on a script for a documentary. That's going to take some cash. Uh, but I think that it would be a very, very important thing. So um, is the next summer barbecue going to be scheduled close enough to Porkfest so we can attend both on one plane trip? I hope so. I want to have Steph's babies. I appreciate that. Um, if you just turn over a little bit, and uh, you might need to get um, a USB adapter, but I think we can probably work that out. And um, I'm just uh, afraid it won't be particularly enjoyable for you, but that's uh, nothing new given my skills. So, um, next summer barbecue in England. Well, I don't think it's called a barbecue. Isn't it called a fry-up or something like that? Um but uh, yes, so thanks everyone. Uh, I guess did we get a chance to talk. Yeah, we talk again before Christmas. Yeah, of course we did. We'll talk again on the uh, 18th, and then maybe we'll do a Christmas Day show, or maybe on Monday we'll figure that out. 
but uh, thank you so much. And uh, of course, a last apology to people who misunderstood my Herman Cain video. I certainly was not saying that he was a good candidate. I am, of course, an anarchist, but uh, I still think that there was... Oh, fry up his breakfast. Okay. Um, nothing better than the opening scene of With Nail and I. Just makes you never want to even visit England for the food or to bring your own food or just turn to cannibalism rather than eat all that fried stuff. Anyway, thank you so much. Have yourselves an absolutely wonderful weekend and a week, and I will talk to you soon.